Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Weird World Podcast. My name's Carrie. Hi, I'm Dean. And it's just the two of us. That's that's a couple times lately. Lonely times. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Kids too busy or just not responding to text. Well. Or however the case may be. Yep. Uh, so what do you got, Dean? I have a story about a ghost town, mm. but it's much more than that. I like ghost unpa- towns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you? Mm-hmm. I think ghost towns fascinate almost everyone. Have you ever been to one? I I feel like I have, but I was a kid. Well, me too. I, yeah. It might have been Bodie, California, which I'll talk about in a second, oh. actually. I'm not positive, though. I mean, it was a long time ago. We should obviously. go there. How far away is it? It's pretty inaccessible. Hmm. <laughs> it's, I I've, mean, it's here in Northern California, but it's not. No, it's, I know. It's a few hours. I think, hours away. isn't there one called Calico in SoCal? Uh, there might be. Maybe yeah. I've been to Calico then. That's where I've been with my parents. I could have been there then. I'm yeah. going back because, as you know, I grew up in Southern California, I, as did you. I am. Oh, I think You're I aware was of that? aware of that. Yeah. Huh, you know a lot about me. <laughs> <laughs> Ghost towns are pretty big. You know, they have basic cable television shows about things like that, or at least about abandoned places, some of which are in ghost towns. Yes, That's kind of a do. big thing. The eerie, like, stuff and and the places that people left behind is, I think, the big hook to those right. kind of shows, where it's just eerie. It's just weird to find these things, these structures with no one there. But one of the other things that I always found interesting is the story behind the ghost town, the why, not just the strange stuff that's left behind. Most places, most ghost towns that are left behind are deserted for, I, I, would say, I would argue, two core reasons. They are either the thing they did or the thing they had to make them thrive for some mer- amount of time stopped being valuable or they ran out of it. Right. Or other places did what they did better or cheaper. So it's kind of the same thing. It's kind of variation on that. And the other thing is that and this kind of dovetails with what I just said, is that something, usually a mode of transportation passed them by. The rail line didn't go by or was moved or shifted and stopped, you know, going near and through that town or highway or whatever. So those are the two main reasons. Something, some transportation thing passed them by or whatever they had that made people want to live there went away. Mm -hmm. One of the most famous ghost towns in the whole United States is Bodie, California. Because yep. it's it lies in the rain shadow of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. Because of that, there's no real reason anybody should have ever lived there. It's hmm. it's pretty dry and it's very high. It's over 8,000 feet in altitude. But it did have one thing. Do you know what that thing is? No. You've heard of Bodie, haven't you? Yes. It's maybe the most famous ghost town in America. Really? I think so. They had gold. Oh. For not that long, though. In three years after 1876, when the first gold was discovered there... It went from zero people, basically, to 10,000 people in three wow. years and over 2,000 structures. By the end of 1880, many of the miners were already starting to leave, kind of typically going to the next get-rich-quick kind of boomtown. Yeah. Because by late 1880, it was already clear most of the gold was, was, the gold was starting to play out. That's how fast it, it went. It still survived. It still has, uh, is productive for maybe a couple more decades. Yeah, but even by the late 1900s, there's hardly anyone there. And by 2000, I'm sorry, yeah, late 1800s, sorry. And by about 1915, it was truly a ghost town. So it was very mm. short lived, but it, so it left behind these pretty, relatively pristine buildings and and quite a few of them. And today it's just uh, you know these these rotting 
wooden buildings with tumble reeds skidding down the middle of the town. And it's it's become a tourist destination right? because of that. Bodhi's existence was based on that one transient thing is, again, not uncommon at all. It's pretty common to ghost towns when there's just no good reason for something to be there except that one reason or, or, or you know, it, they go away. Yeah. Or, you know, even big cities, I would argue that Phoenix has no business existing. It's just, just, there's just nothing in Phoenix. Why? What's the reason for it to be there? It's like by a river or by an ocean at a port along, you know, whatever. It's just, I don't know. Sorry. Well, so Sorry, why Phoenix. Does, why does anybody live in Arizona, period? Then? I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Too goddamn hot. <laughs> Copper. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's why Phoenix, maybe Phoenix was. I guess I there is a river that runs through it. Phoenix? Mm-hmm. Is there? No. No. Arizona. Are you, is Isn't there? there? I don't know. Maybe. Oh, Colorado River. Well, on it. That's the border. Oh. So there are also countless towns throughout the American frontier that kind of blew away because a rail line. Railroads leaving them are, are being chosen. Some of the town nearby being chosen is super common to just leave a town to wither and die when that rail line didn't come by or, or shifted to some other place. Um, it can also happen with major highways. Route 66. Mm-hmm. Famous, famous. American highways really was just kind of a collection of different rural byways and such that became a famous, in, the first really interstate route in the United States. It shifted, I can't remember when, and suddenly Oatman, Arizona, on the old Route 66, was no longer on Route 66, and it was a ghost town within not that, that long of a time. It, really? It's right now, yeah. It just, it, hmm. that was the life giving vein that made Oatman. How, give Oatman a reason to exist. It, yeah. it shifted and it went away. Huh. Jamestown, the first English permanent settlement in the Americas, yeah. as you might know. Mm-hmm. How can you never hear about Jamestown, Virginia these days? The reason is because no one lives there. And it's been actually a long time. It's really nothing more now than a site for tourists and archaeologists, but Jamestown was repeatedly attacked by Native Americans throughout the 1600s, and they often would burn the town down. Oh, and so yeah. they, they burned it one more time in 1698, and the leading citizens of Virginia said, screw it, and they moved the capital and made, to Williamsburg, and so basically Jamestown just at that last time wasn't rebuilt after the, the latest uh, fire and never was a city again. It's a coast town now. Oh, that's interesting. So are there buildings or anything there? There are. I, I honestly don't know how many of them are, if any, are from real yeah occupy jamestown time as opposed to you know reproduction re- reproductions yeah. of them for the reenactments they do with the people saying here you hear me i have a, gr- a flagon of ale or some bullshit like that i'm assuming they, <laughs> they must say that i've never been there there are other reasons of course for, for ghost towns becoming ghost towns there's natural disasters for instance what's the most famous natural disaster ghost town you can think of it's really famous internationally in italy Oh, um, Pompeo? Pompeii. Pompeo. Oh, Pompe- uh, some people say Mike Pompeo. <laughs> Secretary of State was named after the city of Pompeo. <laughs> Different town, though. The one I'm talking about is Pompeii, which was destroyed <laughs> That's what I meant. by volcanic activity when the nearby Mount Vesuvius, I think, right? Yep. Went I'm off and sure. buried it in burning hot ash and left the people. Yeah. I've been there. In situ. Uh, have you really? Yeah. That's right. I keep on forgetting went to Europe without me because mm. I didn't know you. <laughs> there are also planned ghost towns in a sense so locating your town along a river very common good strategy right 
Usually, yes. Great for transportation. Obviously, it'd be important natural resource right next to you and fresh water. But in the more modern era, what can happen to your town that's in a river valley? Floods, baby. Not just floods. That can happen, sure. But dams oh. can be built. So yeah. dams to create reservoirs to, you know, quench the thirst of thirsty farms and mm-hmm. cities have created many, many ghost towns. And they've also sunk many, many towns. Yeah. Some of, I, I can't remember what it was, but I, maybe, I don't remember, but there's, there's one that a, a pretty good sized town, so like in Tennessee or something like that, you can pass over and, and the, the water's clear enough where you can look down in the water on, on, on your boat and you see, you know, church steeples and the roofs yeah. of houses and just everything looks, looks pretty pristine because it's been sunk in water for yeah. all this time since I think the late 1800s, something like that, when they built the dam. And the tallest branches of the trees still rise above the water line, right. who, the trees that were drowned along with the, the town. The, of course, the most famous, I think, for that is, is from China, where the Three Gorges Dam was built to tame the Yangtze River. And in the 1990s, it finally went operational, I think, in 2004 or six or something like that. That dam, according to Britannica anyway, displaced 1.3 million people. Wow. And drowned and covered countless priceless natural spaces and valleys and things like that and historically significant sites and buildings as well. Really? Oh, yeah. It was a huge deal. It was incredibly controversial, but it's a, wow. it's a dictatorship. So there was tremendous uproar, but, you know, in a democracy, that would have happened. Isn't there something um, in Folsom Lake? Maybe. Buildings? and Probably. I think so. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't be surprised at all. And of course, the Centralia, Pennsylvania, right? That had to be deserted in 1962 when the coal mine that ran under Centralia caught on fire and has yet to be quenched to, to this yeah. day. But that's a topic for another episode. We'll have to yes, cover that one is. eventually. There's also war. The Turkish invasion of northern Cyprus, for instance, in 1974, that's in the Mediterranean, south of, of Turkey. It has meant, has led to like the, the slow ebbing end to a city called Varosha. Actually, maybe not that slow, but it was right on the border of these two entities now, you know, Turkish Cyprus and, and Greek Cyprus. Yeah. And so, and this, the, like a fence line went right through it. So this once bustling Greek tourist destination, I mean, a major Greek tourist destination on the coast of, uh, I think the eastern coast of Cyprus is no more. It's a ghost really? town now. They are, all the Greeks fled just before in front of the Turkish forces, just, you know, just making it out. And then they, they did battle right along that line there and that kind of settled into the border and there's no one there anymore in Barosha. It's hmm. gone. It's a ghost town. Also, there's historically, there's been some famous, like, have you ever heard of Palmyra or Palmyra? Uh-huh. It was a big, I mean, it was a huge, people, it's kind of forgotten the history now, but it almost rivaled Rome for a time. It's part of the Roman Empire and it's also part of other empires. It was amazing now, what's now Syria, and it's just just over time conquered by various places that eventually just kind of gave it the ghost and is now a ghost town. But it was a major, major power, a major uh, uh, city uh, in the um, olden days. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the U.S., the Dutch colony, you've heard of a Dutch colony along the Delaware River called Zwanendale? No. Yeah. It was started in 1631 by 28 hardy pioneers. And then it lasted exactly... One year, because the very next year, the Native Americans massacred them, every single one of them. And yeah. when the 52nd wave Yikes. people got there and saw the carnage, they said, nope, and they went back. Yeah. And so it lasted a whole year. But for Port Chatham, Alaska, 
there was a different kind of war, quote unquote, that led to it becoming a ghost town. And that's going to be our story today. Port Chatham was abandoned in the middle of the 20th century due to, in a sense, a war with monsters. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Never heard of it. You're about to. Okay. First, let's start with some history of Port Chatham. We just had a history of ghost towns. We did. Now let's do a history of Port Chatham. It's on something called the Kenai Peninsula. That's a, a huge peninsula that, that juts kind of southwest out of the bottom of Alaska. You know, think of Anchorage and then go south, and then there's a major little kind of appendage there, the uh, southern, south central Alaska. It's got tons of salmon and crab in the frigid North Pacific Ocean. But, you know, pulling those things from the sea may, gave it a reason to be there. And originally, of course, is the native Aleuts. They'd been there for centuries in the Kenai Peninsula, fishing, hunting, you know. It's, it's a very rocky, mountainous, heavily forested area. Okay. And they survived in small groups all along the peninsula there. And they lived with moose, wolves, and some of the biggest bears in the world because just... Near, if you keep going from from Kenai Peninsula uh, and keep going southwest, you find Kodiak Island, which, as you know, that's where the Kodiak grizzly bears grow to be the largest land carnivore in yeah. the world currently, up to ten feet tall and fifteen hundred pounds. Good sometimes Lord, bigger. could you imagine? That's insane. Polar bears actually, technically, on average, polar bears are a little bit bigger than Kodiak bears, but individual Kodiak bears have been the, the largest. You know, right? Yeah, single animal land carnivore in the uh, world. Yeah, today. Huh. yeah, just a massive, massive creature. They don't. I mean, I, I they they almost never have attacked people. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near one. Take yeah. my chances. But they basically live on salmon, berries, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But they'd probably eat a person if they could. Oh, I think they would. Yeah. I think any bear would if they if it was. You know what? If it's easy, let's do it. Russians began joining the Aleuts. In the 1700s, often intermixing with them, as a matter of fact, inter intermarrying with them. But still, the area re remained very sparsely populated, and a lot of it was unexplored, this whole Kenai Peninsula, right? Mm -hmm. That last part, the unexplored part of it, brought Captain Nathaniel Portlock to the area with his little flotilla from the British Navy in 1786 that was exploring the North Pacific. Right. Right? I don't know if that meant that Alaska was already on the market from Russia, and Britain was thinking about buying it because the United States would later buy it in 1867 from yeah. Russia. I don't know if that was the reason. Because Alaska was technically Russian territory. Right. Then. But still, this British uh, naval explorer was, was tooling around the area, and it is said that he tucked into the little sheltered bay at the southwest end of Kenai Peninsula. It's now called Catch, Catchmark Bay. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. K-A-C-H-E-M-A-R-K. And it's not clear. So it's, it's kind of a big deal. It's almost like a claim to fame, which is weird because I've never heard of Nathaniel Portlock. But no. those people's like, yeah, no, hey, Nathaniel Portlock was here. <laughs> okay, pretty impressed, right? In reality, it turns out, uh, having, I guess, historians have looked at the record, and mm, he probably didn't even go there. He probably just anchored nearby. But so what? Let them have their famous Nathaniel Portlock sighting, okay? Regardless, though, in the early 1900s, an American company set up a cannery at the southwestern tip of the Kenai Peninsula, again, in this Catchmark Bay, right? Uh -huh. 
And they built a little harbor there, you know, for boats. They bought a fishing fishing fleet and some transport boats. And they started setting up canning salmon, mostly salmon, I believe. Thus, a town was born around these operations. Actually, two towns. You'll hear this. Port Chatham and also a village called Portlock, named after the incredibly famous explorer. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But And you'll hear these used interchangeably as if they're one village. They're technically, I guess, too, but they're close together, and we, I'm going to use the same way. Is I'm, I'll probably gonna call it Port Chatham throughout, but Port Lock is right next door and kind of the same, essentially, little village there. Okay. Other settlements grew up around the, whole, the cannery, and other operations opened nearby. There were fishing and other canning facilities. There was cold storage plants. And then a mine opened up nearby to mine oh. chrome. Really? It's not a precious metal, but an important metal. So by 1921, this Port Chatham, Portlock area was worthy of a post office. The federal oh. government sent a postmaster. I don't know. Like the United States? Yeah. Um, this is 1921 now. So Alaska's in the United States. Oh, okay. okay. Russia. We, we got it from Russia. Already. I thought it was before that. No. The fishing and cannage and storage and mining operations supported a small but stable population. So this is a, a thriving concern here. In Wait, I have a question. Port Chatham, yes. Uh, when we acquired Alaska from the Russians, did we kick the Russians out or did we let people who lived there stay there? There's some Russian names in this, so I think we let most of them stay there. I don't, it was always very, very thinly populated by Russians, though. Oh, there was never a lot. There was, Russia didn't do a whole lot of colonization over there. Remember, it's on the Siberian side of Russia where not a ton of Russians (laughs) lived at the time in 1867 when they sold it. Yeah. Just curious. I, I don't think there's a whole lot of Russians there anyway. Okay. I'm sure we let them stay. That's I imagine. It wasn't long, though, before strange things began to happen Uh-oh. in Port Chatham and around there. So before long, whispers started that there was something out in the forest. And it was, it was out there. It was scary. It, it seemed to almost crowd them from the forest toward the sea and kept them you know, close to shore. It was as if you know, when you went out to the forest, things were watching you. Sometimes worse, you'd hear sounds, you'd hear footfalls. It was almost as if the town of Port Chatham was indeed under siege by some creature or creatures in the forest. Bears? Hmm. These people have been around bears all their lives. They didn't think they were bears. That seems like the most obvious thing, yes. Yeah. But they didn't think so. They thought it was something more ominous than that. So the first big event in this, what I'm calling the siege of Port Chatham, happened, some sources say it was about 1930 or so, when the mostly native and Russian or mixed workers at the A.N. Nilsson cannery operation, the main cannery operation there, had become just on edge. Many of them had seen something nearby the cannery, like on the outskirts in the woods, and just they, they saw something looking at them. They could, again were hearing sounds. They felt like they'd been watched, and most of them became afraid to leave the immediate perimeter of the facilities. Finally, they had enough. And again, the, the exact date of this is unclear, but they had like a wildcat strike. All the cannery workers said, That's it. This is scary. We're out. And they yeah. left their jobs. The wages were simply just no longer worth the fear that they lived every day by working yeah. in that area. So it's said that records from the cannery management indicated the native workers had walked off the job due to, quote, something, end quote, in the forest that terrified them. 
So this is big. The cannery was the lifeblood of the area. And those jobs were hard to come by. So it had to be something. Whatever that something was that scared them away had to be pretty scary for yeah. these people to walk off and leave those decent jobs. Luckily, though, for Port Chatham, Portlock, after the winter was over, the company, I guess, went to the workers and cajoled them back. I don't know. The security? I don't know what they did. Yeah. And they got them to come back and work. But still, the workers would say that they'd always keep a, a wary eye out into the woods, thinking and sensing and sometimes seeing something out there. Huh. They would see these just these big, dark shapes out there, and they always felt kind of watched, as if something was waiting for them out there. Things finally took a more overtly violent turn in 1931 when a man named Andrew Kamaluk went out logging. Sounds weird. A single person's going out logging, but that was not uncommon. Single people would go out there, individuals, and you know, I, I don't know if this is before there were organized logging efforts or not, but sometimes people would go out and just cut a few trees for fuel or just to trade, whatever. So that's what he's going to do. Okay. Sounds seems hard, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Like just sure how logistically, yeah, how does one person get the log back, Andrew? Yeah. I'm not sure, but it said that's the story. I guess that, a smallish log tree you could do by yourself. Uh, I guess, but you still have to have something to pull it back. I would think. So we'll cut it. Yeah, that's true. If you and if just you cut it have there, to make multiple. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I suppose so. But anyway, he went out to the forest. He's going to do a little bit of solo logging. Yeah, and Andrew Kamaluk did not come back. Uh oh. When friends searched the woods surrounding Port Chatham for him, they found him dead. Was he in pieces? His head had been smashed in brutally. And they found, I guess nearby, they saw the weapon. It was one of two things. It's either a huge heavy log or a piece of heavy logging equipment that was found next to him. I don't know if they found blood smears or something like that, but that's, what yeah. the, that's how the story has come down. The odd thing was that this particular blunt instrument, whether it was the log or the machinery, weighed hundreds of pounds. No one could wield that kind of a weapon. No thing that we know. Hmm. Maybe he fell on it. At least nothing human. And I don't think he fell on it. You're going to have your head crashed in by falling on a piece of machinery. I don't think you'd have to fall from a height and he didn't. Maybe. Don't, don't question it. Maybe he committed suicide. Oh, my God, Gary. Maybe he climbed to the top of a tree and then jumped. You ruined everything. Possible. No, no, not possible. I am denying the possibility of that. Did they even think about that as a possibility? No, Gary, no one has ever thought about that (laughs) except you. Okay. Then people started disappearing. Oh. The first named disappeared person was a local elder named either Simeon or Simon Kvasnikov. Oh. He was from Port Graham, which is nearby. And it's a larger coastal town, I think, north of Port Chatham. Kvasnikov told friends he was going to go out and do a little gold mining. He's going out in the forest and, and see if he can find some gold. Again, not terribly unusual. I'm sure it was River Pan. I'm assuming gold. He wasn't. I don't know. Maybe he was digging. I'm not sure, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you. But Alaska has gold. He was going to go out and do a little gold mining. Nothing to see here. Nothing unusual. It's unclear how long people expected him to be gone, but I think we have to assume it was shorter than forever because Kvasnikov was never seen again and no body was ever found. Oh. 
Mm-mm-mm. Though few names have come down to us from this era, this is in the 20s and 30s into the 40s, this was the first of a spate of disappearances in and around Port Chatham. Throughout the decade, at least for sure the 30s, it seemed to have its height during the 30s, people would go into the forest of the Kenai for whatever reason, hunting, logging, mining, whatever, and they would never return. And soon people started to notice that yeah. a lot of our you know, friends and neighbors are disappearing. Some sources say at least a dozen people disappeared during the 1930s. Some sources say three dozen. In the 30s, people disappeared from that area, Port Chatham, Port Lockham, presumably Port Graham, just that area of southwest Kenai Peninsula yeah. disappeared, were never seen again. Even into World War II, workers from the cannery or the chrome mine would, or sometimes local, other locals too, would go out, whatever, hunting or whatever in the forest, and they'd never return. And this got noticed because the war effort needed the, that food and the, and the chrome. So it became kind of, a, of, of an issue, a little bit, of, according to the stories. But worse yet were the bodies, because not all of these disappeared folks never turned up. None of them turned up alive, but... Sometimes a body would wash up, I guess you know, kind of come down the river or something like that and wash up on the beach, on the shore, on the coast there. Yeah. And people would find it. And usually they were horrifically mutilated. Really? Badly damaged. Some said that the way they were mutilated didn't look like anything a known animal could do. Hmm. So people are getting even more... Terrified. Could, could they determine if the mutilization is that what it's called? Mutilation. You know what? I hope it is. <laughs> Actually, I hope it's not. But either way, go with it. I, I fixed I it like for myself. No, mutilation is a fine. It mutilation be happened in the course of their death, or could it have been done afterwards? You know what I mean? It's hard to say. I, I, I apparently, I mean, there was like terrible, jagged, gaping wounds that looked yeah. like some kind of a something did it, but not you know didn't look like bear or wolves to, yeah. to these people, presumably. wonder why. Yeah. As we teased at the start, Port Chatham would eventually be abandoned. It's a ghost town now. But the strangeness lasted even beyond the survival of the village. In 1968, for instance, an unnamed man living around the bay, the whatever, Catchmark Bay, whatever it is, was went out to hunt goats. You oh. heard that right. He was the man who liked to kill goats. I don't. It's weird. I don't think they're wild goats. I'm not positive. Were they feral goats? Well, I don't know. They must be. I don't know. Are there wild goats in the Kenai Peninsula? I honestly don't know the answer to that, and I didn't look it up. So maybe, or they could be. Either way, he's out hunting goats, and while doing this abomination, it's a good thing Aaron's not here. She's yeah. very upset right now. The man later claimed he suddenly saw something massive darting amongst the trees. He's out hunting goats. He's got a gun. Something big is out there in the forest with him. He freaks out. He feels like it's closing in on him. It's coming toward him and at him. And so he just takes off. He flees and he finds himself in this life and death chase with something big, some huge creature out in the forest that's gaining on him. And he couldn't identify what it was. Is this during daylight hours? I, I imagine, yes. I don't yeah. think you go night goat hunting. I, don't I wouldn't know. think so. Maybe you do. I don't know. I think it's daylight, yes. Luckily for him, though, if not for the goats of Alaska, he survived to tell his tale. So he's able to either outrun it or it stopped pursuing him. Yeah. 
Five years later, in 1973, three hunters were out in the woods. 1973, you said? Yeah, that, that, the guy who was chased was 1968. So this, oh, this okay. is beyond, this is near near Port Chatham, but Port Chatham by this period is already a ghost town. So we'll, we'll, oh, we'll okay. hear more about that in a minute. Gotcha. But okay. So five years later, 73, three hunters are out in the woods. Presumably they're not, not out hunting goats. I don't know what they're hunting. Maybe moose, deer, I don't know. They were set upon, not initially by some creature chasing them, like the, the guy in 68, but they were set upon by a sudden violent storm. So they hunkered down, got their tents up, and were going to wait out the rain. On the first night of doing that, though, as they lay in their tents trying to stay dry, they began to hear something right outside their tents. It's kind of sniffing around, maybe even sniffing at the flaps. It's walking around all three of their tents. They'd later share stories the next morning, and all three of them had would would say that, yeah, that thing was was you know walking around my tent as well. Come yeah. up close, this thin nylon. It's all that stands between yeah. them. And this this creature, whatever it was, and they they just couldn't tell for sure. You know, could it be a, a big grizzly bear? Maybe, but they thought maybe not, because to each of the hunters, they thought that it sounded like it was walking on two feet. The creature was bipedal. I don't know what that sounds like exactly. Yeah, what does that sound like? But to them, to these three hunters, they felt like it was two legged. Hmm. Whatever it was. And I know what you're thinking, and we're all thinking it, and we'll get to that. Yeah. But um, the creature repeated its terrifying circuit of their tents for the next two nights because the rain just would not let up. And finally, the storm broke after three days, and the hunters, in that when it broke in the morning, they, boom, packed up and got the hell out of there and did not ever want to go back to the, to the Kenai Peninsula again. Well, whatever it was didn't. I could have easily harmed them if I wanted to. You would think, right? You would think. So yeah. I didn't. Nylon tan. You would yeah. think that. I always wonder, like when bears, people go camping, bears are mean. Yeah. That bear would have absolutely no problem ripping through your little nylon yeah. tan. So I don't know. In 1990, we go now to Anchorage, but there's a reason. Paramedic is called to in to aid a 70-year-old native Aleut who had had a heart attack while he was being housed at the Eagle River Jail. Oh. So not voluntarily. They were speaking. He's on the he's laying on the gurney. He's he's giving him treatment. The DMT is giving this this man treatment and they're they're talking. He's conscious and the man mentions that he was from the Kenai Peninsula, the Aleut. The EMT says, "Oh, that's interesting. I was down there hunting recently on the Kenai Peninsula down toward Port Chatham." And, you know, that's let's let's share neat stories. The old man's eyes suddenly widened. He sat up in the gurney and grabbed the EMT by his shirt and pulled him close. He went face to face with him and he, and he asked the EMT, did it bother you? The EMT knew exactly what he meant. Right. Because he said, yes, it had. So then the old man asked, did you see it? The EMT answered, no, I didn't see it. Did you see it? And the old man told the EMT, no, he had never seen the thing out there by Port Chatham, but his brother had, and his brother had been chased by it years ago. Really? If all of this, by the way, wasn't scary enough and strange enough, there's also another Native American, uh, Native Aleut legend in the area that says, that's more of a traditional ghost. I'm just saying this kind of as an aside, because it's, it's, it's interesting. 
it's at least it's traditional in the sense of being human or a, a human ghost, a phantom. It's the phantom of a woman in a long black dress who goes up in the tops of cliffs and just sort of screams and moans and groans until she disappears. Like Moaning Myrtle. Yeah, kind of like that, only scarier and freakier. So what exactly was laying siege to the town of Port Chatham from sometime in the 19, 1920s at least, but, but definitely through the 30s and into the 40s into World War II? What was this thing? First, let's recall the cannery and how those people left because they saw something out there, some big dark creature out there in the woods looking at them, yeah. monitoring them. But nobody was them. ever caught or killed Does or disappeared. Sound, no, no, not from that cannery anyway. So they're just a bunch of babies. Well, no. I mean, they could have been out there waiting for its turn and they were smart enough not to go out into the forest around there and stay mm-hmm. close to home there. Let's also remember how the solo logger got his head bashed in by something with immense strength and by the way presumably opposable thumbs if you can pick up a piece of machinery or a big log or something yeah. like that the goat hunter he was chased by something big and dark the three hunters caught in the rain they were terrorized by something they thought on two legs skulking around their tents for three consecutive nights how about the mutilated bodies washing up on the beach with injuries that people thought didn't look like normal mm-hmm. animal injuries there are some other little kind of incidents and evidences that might point us in the right direction. To wit, one thing that got lost in all this, the stories of serious things like chases and things like that, it was um, that a lot of locals often reported finding trees, large, full-size, grown trees, ripped out at the roots and just tossed aside. What well, would do that? Uh, what could do that? A giant. Mm-hmm. Paul Perhaps. Bunyan. Paul Bunyan is Maybe. one option. I like that. I like that. There was another incident. I'm saving now because it, it leads us in the right direction, I think. It happened in about 1930, or at least somewhere around 1930-31. It might shed some light. It happened to a Port Chatham resident named Tom Larson. He went out to chop some wood for fuel and also to make fish traps. Uh-huh. And so he headed for a river. I don't know what river it was. When he got close to the river, he froze in his tracks. Ahead of him, down by the water, was something huge and hairy. It looked to him like it was destroying someone else's fish traps, just smashing them to bits. Yeah. He had his rifle. You always carry your rifle around in, in, in the bush in Alaska. And yeah, he leveled a rifle at this creature by the river, trigger on the finger, and he just couldn't. Pull the trigger. Couldn't do it. You mean he couldn't pull the finger? Either way. Trigger <laughs> on the finger? That's what you've never heard this said that way? No. Absolutely. Give me my Sharpie. <laughs> finger on the trigger. And he couldn't do it. He would later, it was just seemed too human like to take that shot. Mm. We're getting there, aren't we? And again, yes, I know we people are. are saying obviously, and it is obvious, but. Let's, let's have open minds. Around the 1930s, a group of hunters were out tracking their quarry. It was a bull moose. They were moose hunting. So they're tracking this moose by its, its prince. It's prince? You know what I mean? And <laughs> it's, it's hoofs. Is it, is it moose? Yeah. Prince, yeah. yeah. Okay. Soon, they noticed that it appeared something else was tracking this very same moose. Whoa. That something else left 18-inch human-like 
footprints. Well, gee, I wonder what this could be. Mm. What could, uh, I'm sticking with Paul Bunyan. Are you? Okay, so far. Soon, they reached an area where the grass was all matted down and disturbed. They thought it looked like something had happened here, like a battle, like a fight. And they you know, went a little further on this little matted down area on the other side. The only prints that continued were those huge 18-inch man-like <laughs> footprints, kind of like how Jesus carries you on the beach. Yep. Very much like that. So two prints went in, fight, 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 uh-huh. one print left. Fight, fight, fight. They're rolling around on the ground, mm-hmm, apparently. Mm-hmm. It was a tussle. It's a yeah. moose, man. Yeah. But this thing is is able to kill a moose, which is not easy. Even with a gun, I don't think it's easy. But with- I know. However... If this creature could pluck full-size trees well, out of the ground by their roots. Trees. No, I don't think like redwoods, nothing like that. You know, the kind of thin, you know, full-grown trees. But if you've seen an aspen or a birch, something like that, but yeah. Do they have those up there in Alaska? They have birch trees, I'll bet you. I think, maybe. I'm going to assume. <laughs> I bet they do. I don't know. I've tried to pull a smallish okay. thing. Well, guess what? You're not out a of giant, the soil. Hairy creature. Or at least well, you're not giant. <laughs> but to the <laughs> things I've tried to pull out of the ground, I'm giant. That's true. Yeah. You, you feel? Do you do that because you want to feel like a giant? Is that what you garden? You feel just big <laughs> and strong to these flowers. Roots are innocent. strong. Then we have actual clear sightings. Okay. As as far back as 1900, a prospector near Thomas Bay was out a prospecting. He climbed up a tree. He went to get his bearings, see where he was. So he climbed a tree, started looking around, and in the distance, he spotted a group of creatures. He described them as, quote, the most hideous creatures. I couldn't call them anything but devils. Oh, okay. That's not nice. Well, no, it's not, is it? Because aren't we all God's creatures? I think so. And don't call us hideous devils. Exactly. Thank you very much, Prospector. When he realized they were coming toward him, maybe even for him, yeah, he basically dropped out of the tree, shinned down, and he raced for his canoe, escaping just ahead of the advancing man-like devil monsters. Mm. He felt certain that they did mean him harm. Me too. Though if he was able to scale down a tree run to a canoe, and then get far enough away in the river before they could reach him. They weren't very fast, it sounds like to me. Maybe well, there's, there's ambling toward depends him. depends on how far away they were. Yeah, you're right. Still, pretty damn scary, if you ask me. So, a man named Albert Petka also had a sighting. In fact, he was attacked. He, was, he lived on a boat near a town called Nulato, yeah, it's in the Alaskan interior. Thomas Bay, by the way, is over on the Alaskan panhandle, so we're not in Port Chatham, oh. but I'll tell you why in a second. Okay, what year are we in now? Uh, I don't know. This was in the, the first half of the 20th century, but Albert okay. Pecker was attacked on the boat, uh, in, on, on his houseboat, effectively, by something he called a bushman. A quote, bushman. His dogs bravely fought with him, and they were eventually able to drive the creature away, but Pecka was left badly injured rescuers came to his aid and he was able to choke out the story of his attack by these bushmen and then sadly he died oh goodness he was killed by these things did the dog survive i hope so i think i'm gonna say yes okay good thank you 
Another man named John Meyer was camping near Ruby, Alaska, which is not too far from Nulato, again, in the, in the Alaskan interior. And in 1943, he too was attacked by a Bushman. Meyer also had dogs, and they also came to his aid, and he was able to escape and get to his canoe and paddle to help there but he again was badly badly injured he got to some i don't know a mining camp or something like that and was able to tell his story before he too succumbed to his injuries from the bushman Hmm. though again these events weren't in the canai they provide a hint a further hint to the terrifying identity of this creature that did terrorize port chatham these events and and the events at port chatham of course were undoubtedly the doing of the Nantinook. The Nantinook is a creature said by the natives of Alaska to be a, you guessed it, giant, hairy-like man-beast. Oh. A man-like beast, what we would, of course, call a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot. Yep. But the Sasquatch they have up there in Alaska, uh-uh. They're not hairy in the Henderson Sasquatch. They're not sweet and shy. These things are vicious and murderous, and they hate people. Huh. Period. They are brutal. Finally, this whole idea was seemingly confirmed in 2009 when an article appeared in the Homer Tribune. Homer's a town on the Kenai Peninsula, and it outlined the story of the siege of Port Chatham and all the different disappearances and all the different things I've talked about. Uh, they appeared in that 2009 article in yeah. the Homer Tribune. A lot of that came from a 1973 Anchorage newspaper article which um i guess didn't no one could find it but someone finally did but but it was retold in the book of a guy named john green he's a bigfoot hunter back in the day but it essentially told the whole story of the siege of alaska the siege of port chatham and what happened how it became a ghost town and he, in this article in 2009 we find out the story uh, the author of the homer tribune was able to interview a woman named melania helen kell and she was an elder of the Nanwalek natives tribe, and she told her story in 2009. She had been born in Port Chatham in 1934. Oh. When she was a girl, her mother had told her about the town and how it had been terrorized of the 1920s and 30s, and basically for two plus decades had been terrorized by these Nantinooks out to get them to the point where no one would have even feared going out into the forest. And and you know these creatures that the word connoted kind of this half man half beach. So she confirmed that that they you know that that's what it was is this man like creature called the Nantinook, and it was it for whatever reason it laid siege to Port Chatham and Portlock, and uh, all those explains all those disappearances. The guy with the bastion head, etc., was by these creatures these sat these these evil Sasquatch mm-hmm. creatures. So even in the in the 1940s, people started to leave, and you know, especially families with children. Some of those started to leave, and the, kind of the the vibrancy of the town was diminishing. When in 1949, the town had had enough. Everybody, all the adults of Port Chatham slash Portlock, got together one fateful night in 1949 and said, "What are we going to do about this? This is this has gone on too long. What can we do about it?" And Eventually, after I imagine hours of debate, they came to the final sad conclusion. They have to go. The entire town decided 
and mass, they cannot coexist with this yeah. anti-nook, and they would leave Port Chatham, their their homes, their school, everything. They'd leave behind, never to return this this terrifying place. Did how many people was it? It was. It doesn't say, but it was not an insubstantial uh, settlement. Yeah, there was. You know, it had to be. It had to be a couple of hundred of people. Huh. And virtually overnight, the only thing left in Port Chatham was the postmaster and his post office. That was it. And then wow. finally in 19, I think it was 1950 or 51, the federal government said, okay, well, there's no one there to get, get right. mail anymore. And they closed that down. And he was able to leave as well. So um, virtually overnight, Port Chatham, Alaska became a ghost town because these vicious Sasquatch creatures huh. didn't want them there. So... You probably also know where we're going here, but it's a great story. It's a great legend. Does it hold up? Let's find out, shall we? Well. So how about that mass walkout of the cannery because they're afraid of that thing in the woods that was looking at them? Well, most of the sources say that it happened in 1905. It turns out the cannery had not even opened in Port Chatham in 1905. <laughs> so there was no central employer. There's no one to go to and say, we demand that you, you know, and, and have some kind of strike and have some kind of walk up. There's no such thing. But in 1905, there's just various you know, pe- people living and fishing and things like that. It was already it was becoming a town, but yeah. there's no central big employer like that yet. Right. Some people say, okay, it happened in 1930, and the cannery was in existence by then for sure. But that still doesn't work because guess what? There aren't any company records saying the people walked off the job because of something terrified them in the forest. They're just simp- a, a check of the records after the fact to the degree they exist, has no mention whatsoever of any kind of something, let alone any, or even any kind of walkout, any kind of labor action whatsoever. Yeah. That never happened. So it's fiction, essentially, uh-huh. that 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 uh, kind of initial story. Another fiction is the the two Death's Door stories. Right. First of all, I hope you, I don't know if you noticed now, but didn't you find it incredibly convenient that these two people who could be eyewitnesses to these Attacks by this Sasquatch creature both live just long enough to, to tell, tell a story somebody. and then die. Because I yeah. think the, the writer of these stories is, is much more interesting if they die. Yeah. But they've got to tell someone first. Otherwise, you don't have a story. But they, right. they write it down in their blood. And so the Pekka, right? He was the, the guy who lived in the boat who was rescued. The rescues came to him and he was able to choke out his story before they died. How? He lived there alone with his dog. How did anyone know he right. needed their help? It makes no sense. So yeah. he, there would have been no rescuers. He didn't have a phone or anything like that. So that makes no sense. And then the other guy, he was um, alone with his dogs on on his boat when he was able to go to help. Yeah. You know, that just his name, that, that was John Meyer. Again, it's just incredibly convenient that he's able to gasp out his story and and then die. It, it's it's kind of a creepy pasta-like detail yeah. that should be a huge red flag that the story is just bad fiction. And in this case, it is. The biggest fiction, though, is the whole rash of disappearances. The, whether it was 12 or 30 or 40, they never happened. Right. There's nothing of that sort. Very few of these supposed disappearances, you'll know, really only Kvasnikov, the gold miner, have names associated with them, these disappearances. There's no names. Oh, There's okay. one guy has a name. The others are just some, hey, 12 people disappeared. Maybe it's 20. Maybe it's 30. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's more. The rest of these disappearances are asserted free 
of names and any really of those kinds of details that would allow them to be investigated. Another monumental red flag. And then there are just the sheer numbers, right? A dozen, three dozen. How many people would it take in a small area to disappear in a relatively short amount of time before it's people are shitting deal. themselves? Yeah. It's a huge deal. And it's a yeah. major media story, at least at least locally, if not beyond. Well, not many. Yeah. A, a handful, I would argue. Yeah. A single digit, I would argue. But 36 or something like that, oh my God, it'd be international news. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, that's pretty ludicrous. Uh, when you read something like that, you, I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm talking to listeners now. I know this, I'm on my soapbox <laughs> now. You just, just apply your common sense to that. And just in that case, if there was 36 people went missing in 20 years in this very, very small part of Alaska, that would be a major story. It wasn't, you've never heard of it. That is a, a huge tale that it didn't happen. And then when you do that, I beg you, whatever source pass it along <laughs> as pure unvarnished truth, never read that source again, never trust that source again, because they have proven to you that they are overly credulous and they'll pass along complete bullshit with a straight face and they're not a, a valuable source. They're disreputable. I mean, anybody can, you know, sell a dumb story for 50 bucks to a website. And, yeah. And that's what happened here. But more than common sense, we can also say that data backs up the idea, the claim that none of these people disappeared. Our old friend, the podcast Skeptoid. Yeah. Uh, did a, he did a deep dive on this and did like, a, I don't know, a LexisNexis search, I imagine, of all. There's some kind of Alaskan, um, like a central clearinghouse of Alaskan media, Alaskan newspapers. Uh -huh. and so he checked it from like since its beginning all the way through 1963, which would have been about 14 years after the town of Port Chatham was allegedly um, deserted. Right. And he found basically one sort of possible disappearance in the Port Chatham area during that entire time. And that that's not wasn't even disappearance. Is one man died of a quote accident in 1920 with no further details in this short newspaper piece. There was one local missing person during this thing. So there's no none of these horrible deaths yeah. that happened at all. And there's one local uh, uh, missing person during this period from that area. And that was well actually two I guess one incident is where two hunters left on a boat for a two week trip in 1917, and then it disappeared. The thing is, they didn't leave from Port Chatham. had nothing to do with Port Chatham. Just a little while later, when people were looking for them, they heard rumors that a boat like theirs was found in Port Chatham. And so when they went to investigate, the people in Port Chatham said, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't have that boat. <laughs> That's it. That's the only connection to Port Chatham of this one disappearance at all. Yeah. So no mass disappearances, no, no deaths by trees and, and heavy equipment. Yeah. And this is Alaska. People disappear in Alaska. Yeah. It's, it's a, an unforgiving place. So hmm. there were also, of course, as you can guess by now, there were no mutilated bodies that washed up on shore. And as I think you were thinking when I was t telling you just a few minutes ago, is what exactly does a mutilation that can't be done by an animal, a, a known animal, look exactly. Like exactly? If it's yeah. ripped up, it's ripped up. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if they're measuring for bear claw widths or something like that. But what is it's again, it's one of those things like, it's one of those added details where the person making it up says, okay, and they found mutilated bodies, and, and they think, okay, people are going to say, well, so what? It was a bear. So yeah. I have to throw something in there that says it can't be a bear. Right. So he, you have the witnesses saying, oh, and it couldn't be done by, by an animal. That yeah. doesn't make any sense, but you add that detail to make it sound more supernatural, yeah. more unusual. So and how about that native elder? 
Milan, I think her name was, who told the story to the Homer Tribune in 2009. Mm-hmm. Well, that is sadly, simply, and all too often the answer in these kinds of stories, but that's because she lied. And I'm not casting aspersions. Her own cousin said she did. Oh. <laughs> it was a good lie. It was a, it was a useful lie. The woman made up her story to get people to stop going to Port Chatham. So Port Chatham by, by 2009 had already become a thing. Remember, there's this article in 1973, the, the whole story of the dis- desertion by, by Sasquatch siege was yeah. kind of started before in the 70s, and, or maybe even a little before that. And the, um, so, and, and, you know, the, this area had some meaning to her tribe. And so, she told this story to a newspaper with the intent, okay, white people, stop going there and disturbing my ancestral lands. Oh. That was why she told that story. Of course, she didn't think that one through. I didn't understand no. how the internet yeah. works because it just it ratcheted up the interest in Port Chatham yeah. tremendously. So it, was, um, it had the opposite effect, but that was the intent. Here is her relative who later explained what happened. I'm going to quote. My cousin Melania was being interviewed and we were sitting with her. This her name is Sally. This is her cousin. Melania kind of made up a story because she was getting tired of people asking if the story is true. She made up the story about how Bigfoot was killing people. It wasn't true. Everybody knows that. But it was not our place to say nothing. Not I mean Sally was much younger than her. Yeah. We all knew, but we couldn't just stop her. We were brought up in a way where we can't tell our elders they were wrong. So they're sitting with Melania. She's spinning a bullshit yarn right. to the newspaper. They knew it was nonsense, but they didn't say anything. Yeah. The siege of Port Chatham and the thing that supposedly drove the people from the village, all of it is nothing more than the invention of a dishonest internet hoaxer, effectively. Hmm. Yeah. There's not even a there there in terms of the supposed native legend, right? The Nantinok? Yeah. Nantitook? Nantitook? I forgot how it's pronounced already. Sorry about that. Yeah. It's not a Sasquatch type of creature. It is much more like a boogeyman like uh, that we have. It was... In fact, often the way that legend is told, and the name's not quite the the same, by the way, it's a little different, but it it has these kind of supernatural spiritual elements to it as well. And um, it's kind of a, it's thought of as a wild man of the forest who steals children. It's a myth. And the reason is to keep the kids close, just like the boogeyman is. The modern myth makers sort of twist that now. They ditch the the spiritual part of it and they they ditch the boogeyman parts of it and they turn it into a Sasquatch, but a mean, vicious, evil Sasquatch, but it has, but that's not a true characterization of the legend that's there. That's another very, very favorite thing of, you know, the bad kind of cryptozoologist is to find your Native American legend, your Native, whatever Native uh, you're in, their legend, and you either make one up or you twist one to fit what you want it to be. In this case, they did the latter. Yeah. Well, so Port Chatham really existed and is now abandoned. Absolutely. Okay. But we know why. But we absolutely don't know know why. The sudden abandonment of Port Chatham had nothing. The whole thing, again, Melania talked about how they got together in 1949. Everybody said that we have to leave. The the Nantinook is too dangerous. Never happened. Yeah. Pure fiction. She was, was, again, a good lie. No one left Port Chatham from fear and was not that suddenly abandoned. And as always, the answer is a, a lot more prosaic. What happened is that the people of Port Chatham did leave fairly quickly. But they did so not long. Mostly they started leaving in, in larger numbers right after World War II for a couple, of, a couple of very explicable reasons. One, and critically, the Alaskan Highway, I guess I think it's called Highway 1 that go, loops through Alaska in that area of southern Alaska, was completed just after the war, and its route did not include Port Chatham. It didn't go that far. 
it didn't and so it went through like port graham and to the north and so almost overnight it became much easier and cheaper and more efficient for people shipping or storing fish and things like that right. to do so on one of the towns like Port Graham along the highway. So Port Chatham's economic reason for being was suddenly became very expensive, very inefficient. You could do, go there by boat, but that was much more expensive than doing it by truck. Okay. So suddenly it just – it's the, the classic reason for right. a ghost town. The thing it did well was done better nearby. Right. And then the, the A.N. Nielsen Company – that operated the Portlock Cannery, which was the main employer, they built a new and better facility in Seattle in 1950. And they just, a lot of the operations, they'd just catch the fish and then take it right, right. down to Seattle. Yeah. And so they, and they closed the Portlock Cannery, I think, I think a little before, around 1950. Huh. And that was, I mean, that was then, or actually, I think a little before that, the price of chrome collapsed shortly after the war. And so the mine was shuttered shortly after that. So you have this, this triple whammy hitting Port Chatham very soon after World War II. And, you know, the families and the workers and all the people, they, they left. Yeah. They moved to nearby towns to where the cannery jobs were. Right. Or they just throughout Alaska or anywhere and beyond. And Port Jackson did become a ghost town. And it, did, it was fairly quickly, but it had nothing to do with Sasquatches right. and the siege. Or then there's no dramatic meeting where they all decide to abandon their fair city so you know also think about this like like a rash of disappearances would be a major story can you imagine if an entire town said we're leaving because we're afraid of sasquatches are attacking us oh my god even in 1949 that would have been which by the way was before bigfoot was a thing yeah even it really wasn't invented until 1957 or 8 as you recall yes and the simple fact is that most of the details were invented decades later by some, I don't know, like I said, some disreputable yeah. fake cryptozoologist. I love cryptozoology. It's one of my favorite subjects in the world. But if we're to be taken seriously as a science, you need to, to reject these kinds of idiotic stories. They don't help. They hurt. Yeah. That's my, I'll be off my soapbox now for good. But um, really? you, know, you should demand. Well, maybe not for good. <laughs> for the rest of this episode, which is pretty much done. Uh, I, but I mean, you know, I, I hate, I, you know, I, I know some listeners don't like it. When we poo-poo these things, but this is this is a great story, but it's such an obviously it's not a, there's no it's not like a you know some I I like subjects where we go hmm I'm not so sure and this one we're yeah. really really clearly sure it's a great story yeah. but we're very clearly and that's sure that's what I was gonna happened. say this isn't a uh, well nobody knows yeah this kind isn't of like story. A, you never they know. know yeah we hundred percent yeah do know it wasn't I wish it was it wasn't but I thought the story is still worth telling. I hope well, you agree. Thanks. Sure. It is an interesting story. I hope our listeners do too. Me too. Okay. Okay. That's it. That's all we have for the, the town that dreaded Sasquatch. I'm, I'm leaning toward that. Okay. What do you think? Do you like that? that? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. Okay. See ya. Thanks, Dean. Bye.